wish that pop was here right now to see this good crop that we finally got. Good God Almighty, man, will you look at them beans? Man, look at that cone. And them watermelons must be at least three feet long. Why is that song so conducive to segways? This is hell. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. Okay, the planet isn't literally on fire. In fact, there are fewer and fewer fires on our planet, and that just might be the problem. Our relationship with fire, which stretches back, well, who knows how long, has been kind of screwed up lately. For the vast majority of human history, we've actually been kind of fine with fire. We used fire to actually control nature in a way. We would burn living vegetation in order to make way for growing food and to make certain that we would not have runaway conflagrations that could be a threat to our safety. But of late, say, the last few centuries, the past few centuries, that is, we have done everything we can to make certain that there are fewer and fewer fires because fire is a very frightening thing to us. But that's the weird part. Fire didn't used to be so scary to humans. Fire was just another part of the natural world, like water. However, while we send probes to other planets in search of those that may sustain life and water, Earth is the only place where you can find fire. Fire means life, and if you want to find life on other worlds, you will likely find fire. All that said, we fear fire so much back here on Earth that we have fewer and fewer fires, and that's the problem according to our next guest. The lack of fires leads to all sorts of combustible debris laying around in the natural world, so when fires do break out, they can actually get out of control, spreading quickly, fueled by the heat of climate change and all the stuff laying around that has not been consumed by the natural force of fire. These so-called wildfires can quickly become massive, but here's the thing, it's not the actual fire itself that can be a threat to human as well as animal and plant life. The real threat to us is not the flames themselves, but the smoke that the fires cause. Smoke filled with particulates and burned off chemicals from human construction. That's the real threat. It's the inhalation of smoke that can, own, that can not only threaten our lives, but future lives, and in the long term, impact the lives of children. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with historian Daniel Imavar, who wrote the Guardian article, A Deranged Pyroscape, How Fires Across the World Have Grown Weirder. Despite the rise of headline-grabbing megafires, fewer fires are burning worldwide now than at any time since antiquity. But this isn't good news. It's banishing, in banishing fire from sight, we have made its dangers stranger and less predictable. Daniel is an associate professor of history at Northwestern University, where we are broadcast from every Saturday morning on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago's Sound Experiment. He's the author of How to Hide an Empire, a short history of the greater United States, which I've been told by many listeners and friends is a fantastic book. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. First, Alex, who is joining you in the producer's booth today? Is Lindsay. Say hi, Lindsay. 
Hello. Hello, Lindsay. Nice to meet you. I had no idea that I knew that there was somebody else over there because I didn't think that Alex had lost his mind and was impersonating a different voice. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Alex, anything new by you? Uh, yeah, you said that thing about Mel in the in Chicago Eater. Yes, that was fantastic. You know, my favorite part of the whole uh, story, right up on the bar cat was what? Uh, our bartender Donna, my favorite probably bartender of all time, just feel not feeling like giving her last name. Yeah, only the- person in the entire thing did not give her last name to the Eater. You, you don't owe those people anything. I wonder what that was all about. I don't care. I love it. Good, good job, Donna. I thought it was great too. I thought that was very fantastic. And well, I did have a problem where it said that no one could remember when they got the cat. That would be like three minutes of basic research. I think it depends on what time you came to the bar and asked. Do you remember? When? Well, no, I'm not going to do three minutes of research. Remember. It was maybe four or five years ago, like it says in the thing. But I think it was four. If five. I had a journalist asking me, I might go back and look. <laughs> I know. Uh, we could probably just look it up in my notes because I think that we announced his arrival here at the bar. All three of the cats' arrival before two of them, before all three ran away, and then only one came back. So, my girlfriend and I actually hung out with a friend last night. In our home, without masks and barely socially distanced, we unbelievably had a friend over to our home and socialized. It was really weird. We had a real live conversation with another real live human being, and it was fantastic. I mean, I talked to Alex or Sebastian or Richard here on the show, but that's the only interaction I have with anybody else other than my girlfriend. So last night we talked about movies, weird books, medieval churches, and just about anything you can imagine. We had a wonderfully joyous evening getting lit and celebrating life. And after our friend left, all I could think of was all the stuff I wanted to discuss, like Marjorie Taylor Greene complaining about gazpacho when she meant Gestapo, or how I just learned that the halftime entertainment at the first Super Bowl was the Three Stooges, or the very, very hinky situation in our neighborhood relating to a raid by Chicago Police Department and the feds on a so-called social club, which led to the building being torn down within 24 hours, despite what police are calling an ongoing investigation. Rumors in the neighborhood are swirling that it was a site of sex trafficking or a meth lab, and I forgot all about all of that stuff because I was so caught up in the moment, having a real live conversation with someone other than just myself and my girlfriend, but more important than hanging out with a friend, and to be honest, suddenly there's nothing more important to me than hanging out with a friend, and whatever hinky stuff that's happening in our neighborhood, which is really weird. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what's your influence in? What's your influence in? should ask the people who own that building. I know. I'm very curious. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you see that in the news? I saw a puzzling story that I did not have any or near enough details about. <laughs> Nobody does, apparently, which is very bizarre. Did you ride your bike here today? Nah. Oh, I was going to say, you should drive by there. 6948 Northwestern Avenue, if anybody wants to see <laughs> a very hinky situation. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter hat... 
You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your ongoing support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff bites a handbook that feeds him, which is what I'm really looking forward to. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation with Daniel on fire. Again, the question from hell is, what you influencing? What you influencing? You can email us at chuckatthisishell.com with your guest or topic suggestions, comments on the show, constructive or destructive criticism, and we will likely share your thoughts on air. You can also send us stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60649. We got an email from Daniel T. who writes, Hope you are feeling better. I have a week's worth of episodes to catch up on, so I'm not sure how your physical health is doing. Sometimes it seems your entire life is the leftist radio version of the flu game. I also hope you will feel, uh, sorry, I also hope you feel like you have the space to take care of yourself and that you land a multi-million dollar advertising deal with Nike. Speaking of companies with exploitative supply chains, I have a guest suggestion for you, either of the art, uh, authors of the now ancient article from Descent back in October of 2021, titled, the problem with conflict minerals in the early 2000s activists began to campaign against the extraction of conflict minerals. Today, violence continues unabated in eastern Congo, underscoring the misguided frameworks governing transnational intervention. It's by Josephat Musamba and Christoph Vogel and discusses problems with the approaches uh, taken by rich countries to deal with the problem of conflict minerals in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That short article covers a ton of problems in a short space of time, and I've had to re reread it a few times. Here's my attempt to summarize those issues. Top-down mentality, i.e. ignoring impacts on artisanal miners. White savior mentality, i.e. lack of input from affected people or diverse perspectives. Silver bullet mentality, i.e. lack of a holistic approach to resolving regional conflicts. Potemkin mentality, i.e. relying on blanket bans and cheap verification sufficient to satisfy rich customers but not sufficient to solve local problems. Privatized mentality, i.e. outsourcing verification and enforcement to potentially untrustworthy actors. Unsophisticated mentality, i.e. technical and logistical shortcomings. And even more problems than that. If you do speak to either one of the authors, I would be interested to know whether they would propose alternative policies to rich countries or big, con uh, big corporations, especially recommendations from people in war zones or exploitative industries. All I can think of after reading this article is to focus on improving the conditions facing the people affected so that they can exercise greater leverage in shaping policy, but doubtless that's what the white savior do-gooders thought they, we were doing in the first place. Thanks, Daniel. No, thank you, Daniel, because this is a fascinating article and topic. And do not be surprised if we have Josephette and Christoph on the show in the very near future. We also did get something in the actual mail sent to us here at This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we'll be telling you about that following our guest. 
Coming up, the planet's actually not on fire as much as you may think it is, and that may be the problem. We'll also tell you what's happening this week on our pa- exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can su- subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell, and we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what you influencing, what you influences, influencing, as well as hearing from Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff bites a handbook that feeds him. The end is nigh, and this is hell, but we are doing everything we can to make certain that end is not caused by the threat of fire. We've done everything we can to control fires, to make certain that they do not happen so that fire has become, well, increasingly dangerous and out of control. Here to help us have a better understanding of fire and how we can and should live with fire, Daniel Immervar wrote the Guardian article, A Deranged Pyroscape, How Fires Across the World Have Grown Weirder. Daniel is an associate professor of history at Northwestern University, where we are broadcast from every Saturday morning. He is the author of How to Hide an Empire, A Short History of the Greater United States. Welcome to This Is Hell, Daniel. Chuck, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you on the show. I'm really bummed out that we didn't weren't able to have you on the show back when your book came out in 2019. And I've heard so many great things about how to hide an empire. So I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. You write the hundreds of bushfires that hit Southern Australia on February 7th, 2009, felt, according to witnesses, apocalyptic. It was already hellishly hot that day, 115 degrees Fahrenheit in Melbourne. As the fires erupted, day turned to night, flaming embers the size of pillows rained down, burning birds fell from the trees. Jeez, and the ash-filled air grew so hot that breathing it, one survivor said, was like sucking on a hairdryer. Not a pleasurable event. More than 2,000 homes burned down and 173 people died. New South Wales uh, fire chief visiting Melbourne days later encountered shocked, demoralized firefighters racked by feelings of powerlessness. But, you know, we can all feel good about this because this was in Australia and way back in 2009. How unique is Australia and how unique were the circumstances when it comes to the environment and the likelihood that such a fires and uh, such fires and weather would occur? I mean, whether I live in the U.S. or I'm a listener in Canada or the U.K. or wherever, isn't Australia unique? So the likelihood of this occurring again not, here is, well, not that much. Uh, I would not say that. So there are some landscapes, and Southern Australia is one of them. The Western United States is another, especially places like California, that are going to become more combustible with global warming. And I shouldn't even use the future tense there. They already are becoming more combustible. They are breaking their own records and breaking them really quickly, not just for the length of their fire seasons or, you know, the record highs in terms of temperature, but in in the size of their fires, which are growing larger and larger. And, um, you know, we see this, um, this is actually becoming, I think the new face of global warming. It used to be that if you wanted to picture global warming, you would imagine a stranded polar bear on an, uh, you know, lonely polar bear on an, uh, melting ice, uh, melting glacier, uh, that's not really how we picture it anymore. I think increasingly we imagine we have, look at photographs of fires in places like these, or we just imagine the planet on fire. I mean, that image of the planet burning is is kind of emblazoned in our minds at this point. So in your opinion, how do we view climate change differently when we see it not as melting glaciers or rising sea levels inundating coastlines, but wildfires? Because, you know, we don't all live on coastlines, but fire, that can happen everywhere. 
Yeah. And fire is scarier. I mean, there's a way in which water, we, we know that water is, you know, you can experience a flood and that would be really terrifying. And it turns out floods are actually intensely lethal. Um, but it's hard to imagine being happy about a wired wildfire. And I think one reason that environmentalists have doubled down on these images and that we've responded in the way that we have is that there really is something apocalyptic about the site of a wildfire like Australia experienced on Black Saturday. Um, and it, it juices our intuitions that we are living in a, in a different kind of time. Uh, and, you know, for some of us, that feels like a quasi-religious end time sort of thing. You point out that satellites allow researchers to monitor wildfires around the world, and when they do, they don't see a planet igniting. Rather, they see one where fires are going out and quickly. Fire has a long and productive place in human history, but there's now less of it around and than at any point since antiquity. We're driving fire from the land and from our daily lives where it was once a constant presence. What used to be a harmonious relationship between humanity and fire has become a hostile one. Why did that harmonious relationship change? What caused it to change? Yeah, it's totally counterintuitive. And I confess that I when I started to write about fire, I assumed that the headlines featuring, you know, conflagrations from Sacramento to Siberia were telling me that the world was on the cusp of, of just, you know, a global, global fire. And that's, that's kind of how it was going to end. That was the future that global warming was bringing. And that is wildly not true. Uh, it is just, I mean, and, and we know this because as you said, we can look at the planet and and we have satellites that allow us to with astonishing precision monitor the courses of fires and the size of fires all over the planet uh and when we do that exactly as you said we do not see a planet that is in the act of ignition we see a planet that where fires seem to be um extinguishing and so the story that we often tell ourselves is certainly the story that i used to tell myself which is you can think of it as a kind of thermostat model. You know, the higher you crank up the heat, the more fires you get. That's how I was thinking about it. And I thought, okay, well, you know, we're going to have more global warming. We're going to have more fires. And that turns out to be almost the opposite of the case. Um, there are ways in which global warming does encourage fires and we're going to, we're going to talk about them, I'm sure. Uh, but overall, what we're seeing is, um, temperatures go up and, and fires go out. Uh, and that's because the relationship between fire and technology and modernity and the industrial revolution is a lot more complicated, uh, than the thermostat model would have us believe. And you also point out that fire is more complex than the thermostat model you were just discussing. It's shaped by how we grow our food and place our settlements as much as it is by how we fuel our cars. Addressing our fire problem with the, with will thus uh, require more than managing the rising temperatures of recent years, though that's still essential. It will also require us to confront a longer history that since the Industrial Revolution has thrown our relationship with fire out of whack. So is the only way of fixing our relationship with fire to go back to how humanity interacted with fire prior to the Industrial Revolution, or do we need a new relationship altogether due to climate change? No, yeah, I don't think this is one of these things where the only solution is uh, a lusty embrace of pre-modernity. Um, there are moves that we can make. There are things we can do to have a healthier relationship with fire, but right now, 
our relationship with fire has grown deeply unhealthy. Um, and it might be worth just laying out what's making those fires go away. Um, you know, we think of the recent years and particularly the raised temperatures as, as leading to fires. And in some landscapes, they do. Some places, they dry out fuels and make them more combustible and make it more likely that, you know, California will experience wildfires. That's all true. Um, but there's something else going on at the same time, actually a really massive thing that we don't think about, which is that the history of the of modernity is the history of fire extinction. Humans used to use fire all the time. They used it for illumination. They used it for fuel. They used it for warmth. Uh, you know, people were just burning things above grounds and, and they were also using it to alter their landscape. Um, a lot of sort of gardening, um, or you can, you can think of it like that was, was just humans figuring out how to shape the land around them. And the most potent tool that they had to do that was the fire stick. Um, what the industrial revolution did is removed a lot of that fire from the land and, and made it invisible. Um, so we're still burning things, but, but we're burning things in combustion chambers and in, in boilers. Uh, and, you know, it is entirely just to get some sense of how not on fire, uh, modern world is think about this. It is entirely possible that I could go weeks without seeing a flame. You know, if you smoke, you see a flame. If you light candles, you see a flame. But a lot of us can go pretty long without seeing a flame. And that would be entirely uh, alien to someone living, you know, 500 years ago. Fire would be an absolutely essential part of human life. You write that today's unpredictable fires are a complex product of our economy and ecology. They're just not ones we've prepared ourselves for. So, Daniel, how, pos how possible is it to prepare for these fires? Is the solution simply better preparation, that we can live with these fires if we are better prepared? Is preparedness the only issue? No, it's not. Um, so we normally, I mean, I think the dominant frame for how to think about fire has been fire is terrible and we should fight it. And the preparation model is is about that. I mean, if you know you grew up in the United States, you're amply familiar with Smokey Bear telling you that only you can prevent forest fires. And that's a kind of be prepared, be on guard, be vigilant sort of model. Uh, and I think you know that's really not compelling anymore for a few reasons. Uh, one is that we're kind of coming around to the idea that that fires themselves are not unnatural and fires themselves can be quite productive. In fact, there's some species that really depend on fires. In fact, humanity is a species that really depends on fire, has depended on it historically. Uh, and you know, rather than just trying to stamp out fires, which has kind of been the move that we've made for the last couple hundred years, uh, we there are other things that we can do. A, we can um, not build our homes in the paths of wildfires, uh, or we can burn, do controlled burns. I mean, in fact, this was a totally normal thing that humans had done for millennia, was intentionally burn the landscape partly as a way to protect themselves um, from, from wildfire. So if you, if you burn fuels early and often, you can have fires of choice rather than you know, waiting for those fuels to pile up and then you'll experience more lethal fires of chance. And you write that our ancestors didn't just dispel darkness and prepare food with fire. They shaped their environments, repelling pests, flushing out game, and making clearings. With spears, they could hunt individual animals. With fire sticks, they could alter whole landscapes. It's easy to think of our forebears using their torches to set forest fires as vandals, but it's more accurate to see them as gardeners. So if humans have always used fire, including as gardeners, what's wrong with developers or industrial agriculture doing the same? Are they also acting simply as gardeners? Uh, no, I mean, because... so. 
you name something else that's really important. Some of the fires, and indeed some of the most deadly fires that we're dealing with today are not the ones that we normally think of, right? So the headlines direct your attention to, let's be honest, places where rich people live and where rich people have property and where that property is endangered by fires. California is a really good example of that. California is the home of you know, Disney, Facebook, Google, and, you know, all those companies, Hollywood. Uh, and so unsurprisingly, when stuff happens in California, we all hear about it. Um, the deadliest fires uh, aren't the kinds of fires that you see in California, the thermostat fires. Uh, the deadliest fires are what I've come to call chainsaw fires, uh, which are often created by palm oil companies or oil drilling or uh, rubber plantations or, or timber. Uh, and, and what's dangerous about those fires is that um, they happen because, well, because of deforestation, because uh, closed canopy forests, which had protected, uh, sort of locked moisture in and, and been fairly fireproof, uh, are just open to development by, by chainsaw. Uh, and and that, that leads to a lot of fire, not just, you know, burning of wood, burning of forests that might not otherwise have burned, but, you know, burning of buried peatlands that shoot up ungodly amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, and I don't I think of that as a form of gar gardening, partly because it's not deeply intentional. Um, the fires are sort of accidental. The fires are often out of control. Um, and, you know, you, you won't be surprised to hear it that, you know, our land use and our particularly, you know, deforestation and and plantations are not are not exactly something that if we all zoomed out, we'd think this is how we best want to use our land. Yeah, let's let's please cut down rainforests. Um, so, you know, it's it's intentional human action that's doing it, but uh, it's having really deleterious consequences that it's hard to imagine that, you know, if we all had a say in it, we would choose this. You mentioned how Victor Stephenson sheds some light in his recent book, Fire Country, the how indigenous uh, fire management could help save Australia. You explained that in his book, Stephenson tells of two brothers, Poppy Musgrave and Tommy George, Aboriginal elders and the last speakers of the Awulaya language. The pair grew up in the era of the Stolen Generations, the long stretch from the early 20th century to the 1970s. When Australian authorities forced vast numbers of Aboriginal children to assimilate by removing them from their parents and communities, and as we know, that happened here in the United States as well as in Canada and elsewhere, Musgrave and uh, George, you explained, dodged that fate by uh, hiding from the police in mail bags. By evading capture, the brothers served until their deaths as key repositories for an imperiled culture. Not only did they carry their language into the 21st century, they also carried their fire sticks. What is the effect? of eradicating indigenous knowledge on the challenges we face today when it does come to wildfires? It can be catastrophic because, uh, so there's a long history and it's not just a Australian history. It's a, it's a long human history taking place on every inhabited continent of humans intentionally burning things, right? Just as a regular, I mean, humans are a fire species, uh, and they've, uh, evolutionarily adapted around wood and fire. There are parts of our body that you can explain in terms of fire uh, and with the way we look, the way we walk, all that kind of thing. Uh, and, um, and we've kind of lost contact with a lot of that sort of carefully accumulated knowledge of how to burn things. Um, one thing that's really exciting about that book you mentioned by Victor Stephenson, Fire Country, uh, is he just does extensive interviews with these two um, Aulea elders who know all the old ways to burn things. And, and the knowledge is intensely specific. And it's really funny because, I mean, you know, when I think of someone whose job it is or vocation or calling it is to set fires, 
I would think I would call that person an arsonist. That's how I'd been raised, right? In fact, I don't even need a word for it besides an arsonist. If you set fires of something perverse and destructive about you, you read this book, Fire Country by Victor Stephenson, and you see it as a very different kind of operation. Uh, you know, it's incredibly specific. You have to burn the gum trees precisely at this time. Don't burn the trees near the river because they perform this function. Uh, and you realize it's a way of tending the lands. And so what are the effects of tending that land? Well, one major effect is that it cuts down on what can be really dis destructive fires of chance. Uh, because if everything is carefully burned, um, the fuel loads don't pile up. Uh, and, you know, one thing I really love about that book is, is it not just gives you the sort of all this, you know, in-depth meticulous knowledge about how to tend the land by flame, but it gets you in the mindset of, of what it's like to do that. And there's this, you know, a great moment when the Victor Stephenson follows these, um, two men to, to the countryside. And they look at a landscape that I am sure that if I saw, I would think of as lush, and, you know, look at, look at all this uh, vegetation. That's wonderful. And the elders just start howling in frustration. And, and the answer is that from, to their eyes, that doesn't look lush. That doesn't look exciting. That looks overgrown. That looks sick. The land is sick and it has to be burned to make it healthy and clean again. And that's not a kind of way I think you burn something to make it clean, but I imagine that's a way that actually a lot of, of people have thought over the course of human history. And that's the kind of way of thinking that has been, unfortunately, and largely um, extirpated by the Enlightenment and by the Industrial Revolution. I was just watching a documentary about uh, Illinois prairies, and at no point did they discuss fire. And I was really surprised. I f would figure that if you're talking about indigenous knowledge and you're talking about prairies, that you, you would have a conversation about fire. But you were mentioning the, the term arsonist. What does it say to you about our current relationship with fire when the only word for a person who does set a fire is wrapped up in criminal activity? What does that say to you about our relationship with fire? It says that we're terrified of it. Um, and, you know, in some ways, this is a perverse consequence of the success of the Industrial Revolution in extirpating fire is that uh, so many of us live in landscapes where uh, fire is just a foreign element, that the thought of it, the threat of it is absolutely terrifying. In fact, one of the reasons why we rouse ourselves to action with images of a planet on fire is that it's very hard for us to look at fire and think, well, that's helpful, uh, or that's cleansing, or that'll help the land. Uh, we look at it and we think, oh, Christ, I mean, this is in intensely terrifying. Um, so uh, th that's that's kind of where we are with fire. Um, we we no longer really have the instincts to 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 think uh, to sort good fires from bad fires, um, and, and to say, you know, is this helpful? Is this, is this harmful? Um, that's I think that's just a thing that people have done for millennia. And I think after the enlightenment, um, which was really in sort of anti-fire in its, uh, a lot of its ideology, uh, we have, we have a hard time recovering that way of thinking. You mentioned that for Aboriginal elders, Musgrave and George, fire wasn't destructive, but purifying thick vegetation, the sort others might interpret as lush or abundant, as you were just pointing out, elicited howls of frustration from them. The overgrown country in their view was sick and suffering. We need to burn it, they exclaimed, to make it healthy. So how is nature less healthy when we are not burning what Musgrave and George consider to be overgrowth? After all, doesn't burning anything contribute to climate change? Yeah, it does. So, um, and you know, it's actually helpful to zoom out and realize that all the climate change we're doing is, be, or almost all of it, is because of burning. Uh, and and I, you know, the fossil fuels that we're burning, uh, that's a form of that's a form of combustion too. Uh, so the question is, what are we burning? And there are 
largely two kinds of things that you can burn for fuel. Uh, one is that you can burn living vegetation. Uh, you can burn the land and, um, you know, that releases carbon, right? All, all the carbon uh, that is in the, the wood you burn or the scrub uh, gets released into the atmosphere. So you might think, well, that's a problem. Uh, but the thing about burning living vegetation is that there's a cycle. So you burn things, uh, the carbon is released into the atmosphere, that vegetation ideally regrows in some form. Uh, and in doing so, it, it recaptures the carbon and, and takes it out of the skies and back into the earth. Uh, the danger is when you burn fossil fuels, which is buried long dead vegetation uh, that's that's just been deposited in the earth and you burn that and that that takes a one-way trip to the skies uh, there's no you know creating more fossil fuels at, or, or no easy way to create more fossil fuels as a way to suck that at, back out of the atmosphere so so it's actually burning that is getting has got us where we are but but not by and large burning what grows but burning what's buried so are we distracted then when we look at our own personal complicity when it comes to climate change and burning fires when we are saying to ourselves, well, I shouldn't have a bonfire tonight because I'm going to be burning wood and that is, you know, was just recently cut down and therefore I'm contributing to climate change. Is that a distraction from the real dangerous burning that happens and when it comes to burning old peat or ancient fossil fuels? Yeah. So I guess there's two kinds of dangers, uh, in fire that we should keep our eye on because there's a little different. One is the the existential threat. Uh, burning is just going to torch the planet and make it a very different kind of place and a place that that is very hard to live in for a lot of people. That, to my mind, is the biggest possible thing that we could be thinking about and the first priority in almost any of our action. And there, you're right. There's a huge difference between burning uh, what lives and burning you know what 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 has been you know long dead. Um, there are, however, and maybe we might get into this, um, other kinds of fires, fires that do burn, some of them burn living vegetation. Um, they can be quite dangerous, um, not because of what they do to the planet, but just because of the particulates that they put into the air. Uh, we don't think of this, but usually uh, when we imagine fire being dangerous, we imagine people burning to death, which actually is, is extremely rare uh, for people to to die in wildfires. I'm not saying it, it doesn't happen and, and not that it's not tragic when it does, but but that's not really what wildfires do to kill people. Um, the, the real danger from wildfires is, is from smoke inhalation. We are speaking with historian Daniel Immervar, who wrote the Guardian article, A Deranged Pyroscape, How Fires Across the World Have Grown Weirder. He is the author of How to Hide an Empire, A Short History of the Greater United States. You write that some of that fear of fire makes sense. For centuries, cities had been built largely of organic materials. Wood and thatch were common and burned easily. London's 1666 fire, which destroyed more than 13,000 structures, is famous, but it was an anomalous. A fire perhaps 20 times that size had leveled Constantinople six years earlier. Europeans extinguished those astonishing, astonishingly frequent fires, the historian Eric Jones argues, by switching to flame-resistant material. The brick frontier, as Jones calls it, spread through Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries and soon elsewhere. As brick, concrete, and eventually steel structures replaced wooden ones, urban blazes grew rare, but Europeans fireproofed more than just their cities. Their in inventions also drove fire from daily life. Did Europeans attempt to fireproof everywhere, the entire world, after fireproofing cities? Did they believe if fireproofing is good for cities, it's good for everywhere and everyone? And if so, why? You do see a 
massive campaign that originates in Europe and spreads to the world, often through the circuits of empire, to just put out fires everywhere. And um, European forestry, especially through, you know, applied to places like India or the Philippines uh, by colonial officials, by Europeans or, or U.S. colonial officials, um, have a way of, of pushing those lands onto European style land management. And, and the chief doctrine or almost dogma in a lot of that is fire shouldn't happen, right? The way to protect the forest, the way to protect the resources of forest, the way to protect the timber supply is just to prevent fires from happening. And, you know, it's taken us a while to unthink that thought and to rid ourselves of that thought. I think it's linked to the fireproofing of cities because once the land around you has become fireproof to the point that, you know, any fire is really a threat, it's not a huge intellectual leap to come to think of fire differently to, instead of to think of it as a complex companion to the human species, thinking of it rather as just, just a threat, just a danger, uh, which is kind of the Bambi theory of fire. Um, the, just the idea of fire is catastrophic. Um, that's, that's how a lot of people, at least in the United States, grew up thinking about it. So we've spoken with guests on our show who have explained how newly built homes in previously undeveloped areas can be like fire bombs when where natural fires wildfires inevitably happen as they have in those areas for millennia has the brick frontier not come to places like these like in newly developed areas in california what explains any lack of fireproofing of new homes built in previously undeveloped areas where fires have occurred and likely will again yeah i'm so glad you mentioned that um we normally think of fire as you know you just have to have a the fireproof home and, and and then you'll be fine. But actually one of the biggest things that will affect whether you're going to experience a fire in your home is not the what of your home, what it looks like, what shape it takes, uh, but the where of it, where is it? And in the United States, particularly, there's been this really pronounced trend of building in what geographers call the wildland urban interface. In fact, between 1990 and um, 2010, 43% of new homes in the United States were built in the wildland urban interface. And the reason this place is so dangerous is like the name sounds, these are homes that are, you know, in the countryside uh, and, and, and therefore in the paths of wildfires, including naturally occurring wildfires, um, wildfires that may be made worse by attempts to, or maybe made more severe by attempts to curb fires in those areas, which of course then lets, you know, combustible fuels just build up uh, and then climate change dries them out. And, and then you do get a fire bomb. Um, you can build those homes to be more fireproof, but um, at a certain temperature, you know, everything melts at a certain temperature, everything burns. And that's what we've seen in places like paradise in California. Um, it's not the story of, you know, the, the pig that built his house out of, out of straw. And, and that's the problem. Uh, the, the story in paradise is just, you know, when you're looking at a fire that massive feeding on fuels that have built up over decades, um, no home is safe. No car is safe. No hospital is safe. You write that European scientific forestry, which emerged in the 18th century and spread around the world, took as its mission the extirpation of fire. Is this science of modernity erasing indigenous knowledge? Is European scientific forestry an outgrowth of or a strategy involved in colonialism, or is it even founded in European anti-indigenous racism? Does it reflect or reveal something else about us? That's a really good point to add, because on the one hand, 
there's been this kind of Europe originating attempt to extinguish fires, particularly among forest management managers who came to see fire as the enemy, not, not as a friend. Uh, but with that, there's been an attempt to, and a fairly successful attempt to extinguish um, other, other forms of understanding fire. I mean, a lot of the enlightenment uh, thought that came after it tended to regard people who used fire for farming or used fire in religious rituals as dangerously primitive. Uh, and there's been a, you know, centuries of denigration of um, any kind of cultural knowledge that, that is about using fire uh, to the point where, and you know, I just, just say, I'm drawing a lot of this from this absolutely brilliant historian named Stephen Pine, uh, who wrote a recent book called The Pyro Scene. So if you want more, this is a great place to dip into it. Um, but one thing that Pine notes is that, um, you know, European science not only sort of denigrated other forms of knowledge that were much more um, fire curious, but that a lot of European science didn't really make room for fire. It wasn't until recently that fire science was a really stable object of inquiry. Um, so not only do you see this um, driving of fires from the from sight, uh, you actually see the uh, driving of fires from mind as well. You write that the widespread fear of fire remains. This is surely why environmentalists latch onto images of wildfires. There's something. There's nothing unnatural, novel, or even necessarily worrisome about a forest burning. But we are children of the Enlightenment, as you were saying earlier, and fire terrifies us. So, to what extent then do environmentalists, unintentionally, I would imagine, contribute to our fear of fire and any lack of recognition of fire as something that is, in fact, a natural part of nature's process? Yeah, it's it's not a great move. Uh, I think partly because it's sort of unsustainable. What what we keep hearing uh, and telling ourselves, and you know, I've certainly been part of this, is you know, the world is about to burn up, and and empirically that's not true. Um, so it's it's a bad prediction, and I, I think not entirely a sustainable one. But I understand why we go there, why that does become our nightmare image of, of climate change. Um, you know, one other danger, a major danger that climate change poses is, is flooding um, and inundation. And yet, you know, if you, if we pictured instead of a, a world burning, you know, a world with a rain cloud over it and, you know, and, 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 and rain pouring down, I think most of us would be able to decode that image and say, okay, well, yes, it can be bad to have floods and, and that is something we should be concerned about, but rain itself is natural. And, you know, we're not scared of rain. We just, you know, might want more of it in some places and less of it in others. Um, and I think that actually is the attitude that we should take toward fire rather than seeing fire itself as cause for concern, just recognizing that there are good and bad fires. Uh, and that um, one of the things that climate change has done isn't to make the world more fiery. It's just to change our pyroscape and, you know, frankly, take fire away from some of the places where it's been really helpful and bring it to some of the places where it hasn't been. And you point out that even flame-addled California, where fires have increased in the past two decades, is still markedly less fiery than it once was. Stephen Pine, who you were mentioning earlier and you describe as a brilliant chronicler of fire's history, estimates that before Europeans arrived in California, fires, natural and anthropogenic, burned twice the area that they now do. So what explains the popular notion then that fires are increasing when clearly, and as you point out from a study that was in the journal Science, clearly they're not? Well, so two things. One is that... Um just, you know, our reaction to fire, right? We are getting more scared of fire. And so the fire seems more salient. Uh, but the other thing is the kinds of fires we're facing are different and are 
worth being scared about. Uh, it's not that we're getting more fire, but we're getting weirder fire and we're getting, you know, more defiant and unruly fires. Um, you know, I imagine that when California was, was burning constantly and regularly before Europeans arrived, uh, we are talking about regular fires and the kinds of fires that humans can sort of adapt themselves to, and sometimes are creating themselves. Uh, the fires that California is getting now are, are, are ones that humans are very poorly adapted to and, and don't seem to be, and, you know, are occasionally accidentally setting themselves, but, but don't seem to have a productive relationship with. You also point out that in 2000, a prescribed burn in a federally protected area of New Mexico got out of hand. More than 18,000 people had to flee, and the fire came perilously close to the tritium facility at the Los Alamos National Laboratory that had it burned. Uh, radioactive contaminants would have spread widely. The calculations that went into this, confessed the Secretary of the Interior, were seriously flawed. So how good are or bad are we at prescribed burns? Are they far more dangerous than they sound because of any lost knowledge relating to tending to fires and forests? Yeah, that that um, that fire. I'm glad you uh, drew our attention to that. That's a really good one to think with because, um, on the one hand, what you hear from people who know a lot about fire and fire scientists is, you know, we're no longer at the point where we're saying we should, you know, put out all fires. So, so the the dominant thinking now, although it took us a while to get there, uh, is is that we should be doing burns in combustible areas just just to make sure that the fuel supplies don't burn up too much. So we can do controlled burns and we can do anthropogenic burns, i.e. human-made burns, rather than just sort of seeing what comes. Um, so the idea of a prescribed burn, that's what they're called, um, turns out to be, I think, a really good one and a, and, a, and a good idea. However, if we are talking about a landscape that has been deprived of fire for a long time, uh, and we are talking about you know longer and longer fire seasons with global warming that allow um, what burns to you know things that burn to dry out and, and become more combustible, then even prescribed burns, which are a good idea, can be hard to control because it's hard to like it's hard to do just you know to start uh, to just do uh, prescribed burns in areas that that are just ready to go uh, and like you said, we don't have a lot of accumulated cultural knowledge about how to burn the area around the, uh, around the Los Alamos research facility. I mean, there's not like decades and generations of, of smart thought about, okay, well you burn this part then and you don't burn that. Uh, so as we're kind of trying to recuperate lost knowledge about how to burn, uh, we're still kind of flying blind, a lot of us. Uh, and you can, there's, there's happily, I think, a lot of um, much more political sympathy in places like Australia and Canada and to some degree the United States in working with um, indigenous cultures and indigenous communities that have retained some of that fire knowledge, um, just in order to, so, you know, everyone can be up to date and have at least some some concept of, of how to do these burns, because it's not just a matter of walking around with gasoline and, and a match and just like hoping that if you do that enough times, you'll you'll um, make the big fires go away. That doesn't work very well. You mentioned another fire in 2018, a blaze in California known as the Ranch Fire burned over a thousand square miles. Its start sparks from a rancher striking a metal stake with a hammer. The resulting fire lasted 160 days. So are uncontrollable wildfires increasingly easy to start without tending forests with fire? Is our present and even our future one of accidental conflagrations? Yeah, so that ranch fire, I mean, what a, can you just imagine being that rancher just hits a metal object, uh, a metal stake with a hammer, like that was his crime, uh, and suddenly sends forth a furious conflagration. 
two things are going on there. One is what we've been talking about, the um, starvation of the land of, of, of fire to the point where we're just that, we're just a few sparks can touch off, you know, an epochal event. Uh, and the other thing is the thing we talked about a little earlier, the wildland urban interface, that's where the ranch was. Um, so there is a world in which humans aren't building and running power lines, um, through these dry and combustible areas and therefore aren't sending so many sparks flying, uh, and also aren't bearing the horrifying consequences of those fires. I mean, it's, less of a problem for us, at least if, if fires burn, if they're just burning in what we think of as wilderness areas, uh, the, the, the time it gets really dangerous is uh, for us is when, when they burn our homes and communities. And you write that societies using living vegetation for fuel are tightly limited by what the land can grow and what people and animals can haul. With fossil fuels, however, we dig deep into concentrated stores of ancient organic matter, incinerating whole centuries worth of buried plant life annually. The coal, oil, and gas we burn each year required as much organic matter to make as the entire planet grows in roughly 600 years. And as we burn it, we release long dormant stores of carbon into the atmosphere, as you were mentioning earlier. This has changed our relationship with time, the fire historian Stephen Pine has observed. We used to burn what grew around us with effects largely limited to our own day. Now we excavate plant matter from the deep past burn it in the present, and send its byproducts wafting into an uncertain future. So how does, because I found this fascinating, how does that change the way in which we observe our view or understanding of time? Is climate change driven by our changed observations of time? I think that's one of the most challenging things about climate change is that it requires you to think about a future. Uh, and it requires you to think about a future that is qualitatively different from the present you're living in. And that's a hard thing to do. So it's one thing to think, you know, if I drive really fast without a seatbelt, I'll feel like I'm in more danger of getting in a car accident. And yeah, that's a pretty easy thing to envision. Uh, you know, you, you see the day, you see the danger around you mounting as your foot, you know, pushes further on and further on the accelerator. Um, Climate change doesn't really give us those warning signs uh, that that are easy to. The warning signs are all kind of intellectual and invisible. We have to just imagine that if we keep doing this, temperatures will go up, and then we have to kind of think about what that would look like. But but our imagination require we, we have to imagine a future that that is different from the one that we have. So we have to, you know, like read books and be like, oh yeah, that would be really bad if this happened. But it hasn't happened in my lifetime, so I, I don't, I'm not thinking about it happening. But but I do recognize intellectually that you know if we keep burning, burning what we're burning. Um, that then we would bring about this dangerous future. I'm, I'm glad you also mentioned the, the just the sheer amount of burning we're doing. It, 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 th th that figure that you mentioned is shocking to me, uh, but nevertheless turns out to be true, which is that what we are burning every year. So we're burning buried vegetation. Uh, so, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, plants lived, they died, they didn't, for various reasons, didn't entirely break down and were kind of just stored in the earth, you know, like a, like a big battery. Uh, but the, the sheer amount of vegetation that grows, that goes into that, that once lived, that goes into the fossil fuels that we're now burning is astonishing. So the precursors for our yearly burning. So the amount of vegetation that would have to grow to produce the fossil fuels that we burn every year is equivalent to about what the entire planet grows in vegetation every 600 years. We are burning through 600 years of, I mean, it's a thought experiment, but the, the planet's entire growth 
every year. Uh, it, it's, and you know, we're getting the benefits of that, right? We live with extraordinary energy abundance and lots of great things have happened as a result of that. But, um, you won't be surprised that, you know, when you're burning that much stuff, there are real consequences. And now we have a much firmer understanding of what those consequences are. So I want to ask you about uh, the media and the way that the media covers these fires. You write, the wildfires uh, tormenting uh, combustible landscapes such as California, which has experienced eight of its 10 largest recorded fires in just the past uh, five years, highlight the threat of climate breakdown. And yet the California fires, for all the attention they've received, have been more dramatic than deadly. The 2018 ranch fire that we were discussing, which burned for months, only directly killed one person. California's entire 2020 fire season, the largest in its modern history, was about as lethal as three days of traffic accidents on California's uh, roads. So what does that lack of deadliness, why does that not make wildfires less of a story? Does the media in any way exaggerate the danger of fire. And if the real problem with fire, as you were pointing out earlier, is particulate, if it's not the actual fire that's dangerous, but the particulate, does the media report on the danger of burning particulate chemicals? Or, or do they just focus on you know, the deaths by fire? Why not report on the greatest danger to human health caused by fire? Media reporting on this is terrible um, because, and and you know, we're part of it as as news consumers. We are drawn to and excited by and terrified of stories of large, dramatic, you know, once in a decade fires uh, that that torture region and and do great damage. I mean, you know, that that's that's a story I would read, um, but that's not the kinds of fires that kill people. Um, the fires that kill people are the ones that are happening regularly. Uh, you know, upwind of, of where large amounts of people live. And so we are seeing very few people, uh, die relatively, uh, die from fire in places like California. We are seeing by contrast, enormous numbers of people die as an indirect result of fire in places like sub-Saharan Africa and Indonesia. And yet nearly all, I mean, I don't want to totally exaggerate it, but, um, you know, if you just Google around for, you know, global warming fires, you know, what, where's fire going, uh, almost all the reporting that you will, you will see is about, you know, places where rich people have property and the properties in danger, um, Southern Australia, uh, the West coast of the United States, uh, you will not see a lot of reporting of, of places where what's at stake isn't rich people's property, but poor people's lives. And that's sub-Saharan Africa and, um, Southeast Asia, particularly Indonesia. So uh, are the poor more likely to die from inhalation caused by fires than those who are not as poor is the real danger posed by fire ignored in the media because it mostly affects the poor. I mean, I think so. Well, there's two reasons, right? One is that there is obviously something more dramatic about a fire, especially given our pyrophobic state of mind, right? We're just like a fire itself seems like an emergency rather than something that would naturally happen. Um, but it's also, it's just harder to, so, so there, there is something kind of more telegenic uh, about a big fire than just a lot of smoke that's been hanging around the atmosphere for a long time. Um, but let's just give the number, the number of people we think that die um, every year from indirectly from uh, landscape fires. This is from research by a scientist named Faye Johnston is um, 339,000 a year. Uh, and nearly all of them are dying in poor countries. And as far as we can tell, uh, it's not just, so one, one is, I mean, anyone living 
in an area that is inundated by smoke is going to bear the real health effects. And that's going to express itself as heart attacks and strokes and growth stunting in children. Um, and unsurprisingly, it seems that the poorest of the poor, so not just people living in those regions, but poor, the, the poorest people living in those regions uh, are particularly ill-prepared to protect themselves from this massive environmental danger. Uh, and so it's, it's especially the poorest, but it's, it's generally anyone living in those regions um, that finds themselves at, at real risk from the dangers of the indirect dangers of fire. And you were mentioning palm oil production. You, in your writing, you mentioned a program by uh, Suharto in Indonesia in the late 1990s and how that has contributed to, it was a project to have a massive rice production, but it completely failed and instead it destroyed the environment and made it more susceptible to fire. So to what degree can we uh, not only blame the corporations that are doing the deforestation, but how much can we blame I'm not too sure how much they were involved in this, but uh, organizations like the World Bank for their development policies when it comes towards uh, trying to increase, in the case of Suharto, rice production. Is this is this an issue at the level of the World Bank? It, it's, it's a kind of issue. Yeah. So I think one thing that is deceptive about, you know, thinking about a fire and thinking about a stand of trees in California, you know, blazing gloriously, uh, is that you know, it encourages us to think about global warming, which we absolutely should be thinking about, but, but to think about it in a sort of vague and general way, like we all are collectively contributing to global warming. And if we keep turning the thermostat up, we'll get more fires. And that's really scary. Um, it's not a terrible thought to have, cause you know, we should be extremely concerned about the effects of global warming, but, but that kind of global warming taken in the round thinking, I think can distract from some of the much more complex political and dirty business of quote unquote development, uh, which leads to a lot of fires. The fires in Indonesia are, and in sub-Saharan Africa uh, are not by and large global warming fires. They're not thermostat fires. I mean, they're exacerbated by it, but they're not really, that's not really what's the you know, global warming isn't the arsonist there. Um, in, in Indonesia, they're chainsaw fires and they're caused by, you know, uh, land use and, and sort of capital incursions into, um, you know, into forests that, you know, hadn't, hadn't, hadn't been sites of investment before and, uh, misguided development projects and the acquiescence or, you know, complicity of development experts. Uh, it's a, it's a much kind of more complex and a sort of dirtier business. Um, but it's actually really important to pay attention to because that's what's killing people by fire. Um, if, if your concern is fire, you should be thinking about Indonesia really hard and you might not have to think about um, California and Australia quite as hard as you've been thinking about them. You write that when we do think of how humanity is kindling fires, we think of global heating, which is the sum of our energy use in general. Our burning planet becomes an existential crisis linked to modernity rather than one tied to any specific company, activity, or government scheme. And we think mainly of how fire affects the affluent people whose property is at stake rather than the poor whose lives are. Is blaming modernity then an obfuscation of corporate responsibility when it, and government responsibility when it comes to fires and their contributions to climate change. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I don't want to say that no fires are started by global warming because they absolutely are, or no fires are amplified by global warming because they are. Um, but our fire story isn't entirely that. And, and the way that we focus on on just sort of, you know, our collective sin and how it's resulting in global warming 
makes it a little hard to think about specific actors, right? You don't think about a palm oil company. You don't think about um, deforestation and who's doing it. Um, and and we should, because that th those fires are, are absolutely deadly. And actually, th there's another aspect of, for example, the Indonesia fires, which is that they're not just coughing up a lot of smoke. Um, they are opening areas that had previously been protected from flames because they'd been in like waterlogged um, sort of swampy forests um, because of quote unquote development, they are now um, being dried out and, and, you know, just, just driving a road through a forest, for example, um, does a lot to change um, the atmospheric um, conditions and, and how human the atmosphere, how much moisture there is. Um, but doing what Indonesia did, which is draining, actively draining by building canals uh, to prepare swamp lands uh, for you know, rice cultivation uh, has been absolutely catastrophic, not just because, because sort of in opening that new land, it's not just that there's new fires happening and, and a lot of smoke from them. It's also that a lot of that land um, in, in Indonesia contains long buried stores of carbon in the form of peat. Uh, so we are, so Indonesia just in 2015 was shooting up so much carbon into the atmosphere from these chainsaw fires uh, in, 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 in newly opened peatlands that, um, you know, at the height of its fire season, it, not the United States, was the largest contributor or it was outpacing the United States um, in terms of its contribution to global warming via the emission of greenhouse gases. And you write that books about fire typically end with prescriptions. We must invest in science, reclaim lost cultural knowledge, burn intentionally, build resiliently, and power our grids renewably. All that is true, surely, but given how complex fire is and how unprecedented nearly everything we're doing with it is, the best advice would seem to be slow down. What do you mean by slow down and how can we accomplish slowing down? It's hard to think through because it, I mean, it's not an easy, it's, it, it is, I think what we need, but it's also a hard thing to achieve. And I, and I fully recognize the difficulty of that. Um, fire has been, fire is complex, right? Fire is obstinate, fire is difficult to work with. Um, humans have had a productive relationship with it. Well, you know, since we evolved, I mean, it is, it is part of who we are. Um, but, but that's taken a lot of, you know, carefully eyeing it and, and making sure that, you know, we're using it well and we're getting the good fires and not the bad fires. Um, Right now, we have done so many things at once. Um, we've completely changed our energy diet. We've changed how we've used land. Um, we've heated the atmosphere. Uh, we've, you know, we're building in places, you know, in the paths of wildfires. Um, we're letting fuel loads pile up. All of that just puts us in a in a whole new world with regard to fire, and is which is having you know cascading unintended consequences, uh, and and consequences that we are just absolutely not prepared to face. Um, our ancestors had fire a lot. In fact, they set fires all the time, but they were burning what grew uh, and they were checking themselves with, you know, accumulated cultural experience where you burn here, it does this. When you burn there, it does that. Uh, we are not burning what grows. We're burning what's buried. And we have very little um, stored experience to guide us in dealing with fires. So we are kind of just, you know, getting consistently surprised by fires and then also changing the conditions for them so that the fires themselves are getting weirder and weirder and, and sort of uh, in some cases more severe, in some cases they're going out, uh, but they're all getting unpredictable. And I think we're just not prepared to deal with that.
We have been speaking with historian Daniel Immervar, who wrote the Guardian article, A Deranged Powerscape, How Fires Across the World Have Grown Weirder. He is the author of How to Hide an Empire, A Short History of the Greater United States. One last question for you, Daniel, although I could talk to you about this for another half hour. Uh, and it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that we're now burning fossilized vegetation, as you were just pointing out, which sends carbon on a one-way trip to the warming atmosphere. And we're kindling fires that bear little resemblance to the ones we're used to. There's no generational wisdom telling us what to do when we drain the peatlands of Indonesia or let dry fuel pile up precariously in the California countryside, all while raising the temperature of hitherto, hitherto unrecorded heights. So to what degree then was President Trump correct when he said that the reason for wildfires is poorly managed forests? How much were his detractors correct that the wildfires were about climate change. And, and, and I guess the bigger question is, why could neither Trump or his detractors see that it is both forest management and climate change? My sense is, I mean, you see this, you saw this a lot with Trump. He was getting briefed by people who knew what they were talking about. And then he would hear some part of it and then sort of garble it and fixate on it and take it out of context. So so his version of, you know, we've been letting fuel loads build up in in some places because we haven't been doing the kind of, you know, human burning that that was once just constant. Uh, was he heard? You need to sweep the forests more. <laughs> like you need to get out with brooms and sweep them, uh, which is not how to manage um, fuel loads. Um, so yeah, he was wrong about that. Um, but then you're right. Then the response from critics was, no, it's global warming, which is true in a sense, right? Because global warming absolutely contributes, and particularly in California, it really is contributing to the just ever expanding fire seasons. That's a real thing. I don't want to diminish it, but um, I think partly just because of you know our feel for, fearful reaction to fire, partly because of our fixation on on the, the places where rich people live and, and those fires, uh, I think we have an incomplete picture of fire and one that leads us to say, you know, things that are wrong, like, you know, you need to sweep the forest more or our planet is burning and it's almost, you know, going to grow up in flame. Daniel, thank you so much for being on our show. It's uh, really bummed out that we did not have you on the show to talk about How to Hide an Empire, A Short History of the Greater United States, your book that came out in 2019. And so uh, now that we're doing the show on uh, recording the show on weekdays, live streaming on weekdays as well, uh, I hope to have you back on the show again. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. Thanks so much for having me on, Chuck. Take care. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. If that conversation with Daniel Immervar on our really screwed up relationship with the natural force of fire was in some way informative, enlightening, or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com. Click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell and all of our are really, really cool stuff that is available there. By the way, we did get something else in the mail, and you can send us stuff to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659, and our very, very good friends at Kennedy Prints, the anarchist uh, print shop in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood in Detroit sent us yet another one of their stunning prints. Uh, this time, the quote that is featured on it is from theoretical psychologist uh, Amos Wilson, who said, If you want to understand any problem in America, you need to focus on who profits from the problem, not who suffers 
from that problem. They also sent us a bike and walk Detroit City route map and safety guide, which I'm really looking forward to checking out this afternoon. Uh, let's see. Uh, this week's question from hell is, well, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is, what you influencing? <laughs> Ladio says, I've got breadcrumb clout with some of the sparrows around here. <laughs> uh, via DM. You know they're an invasive species. You, you shouldn't be feeding sparrows. Michael C. Says, oh, come on. Let people have their fun with the damn sparrows. <laughs> Michael C. says, a mouth. <laughs> Peter S. says, I'm attempting to influence all my dumbass friends and family when they spew nonsensical right-wing bullcrap regarding bail reform. That's Peter S. Right. Uh, Ginny says, I'm influencing the diet of a family of mice. <laughs> Who's that? You, you're going you to have something bad to say about mice now, Chuck? No, no, Ginny. That was Ginny, yes. Okay. Yeehoak says, what's influencing? Well, an infectious disease that lasts about a week and involves sinus stuff, fever, headaches, being tired. Wait, the question is, what am I influencing? <laughs> wow, hopefully influencing a better question next week. Yeesh. <laughs> right. Point noted. Uh, old pals, hypocrite reader, who, by the way, have a new issue out, so uh, go yes. check them out, uh, said the phenomenon I'm trying to observe due to my presence as an observer. All right. Neil C. says, nothing that's trending. <laughs> and Egon S. says... Bees make Bitcoin, right? <laughs> hey, uh, keep that one from Ginny Marks, because that is definitely going to be one of the ones we're considering as our favorite this week. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash this is hell. On this week's Patreon podcast, it's another edition of This Week in Hell. When I tell you what I learned from this week's This is Hell, which is likely not what you learned from this week's hell, because we lead very different lives with very different influences, and each and every one of us brings those experiences to the table when listening and learning from listening to and learning from our guests. For instance, what you got from our conversations of corruption in Ohio related to the energy sector that may not be what I got from our conversation earlier this week. And what affected me most from our talk on the role insurers played in the founding of the United States and its earliest, most formative discussions is likely not what you got from that discussion. Even today's talk on fires or the lack of them likely did not affect you in the same way it affected me. So this week on Patreon, it's this week in hell, my personal hell, which is a hell that is probably very different from the one you've been experiencing. Also on Patreon, something pretty disgusting, to be honest. Ten years ago, we had a conversation with Rachel Herz, then adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. Rachel had been conducting research on olfaction, that's the sense of smell, emotion, and cognition for over 20 years. She worked as a consultant valued for her expertise in olfactory psychology, emotion, learning, and experimental design. So we had Rachel on the show back in February 2012 to talk about her then-just-published book, That's Disgusting, Unraveling the Mysteries of Repulsion, and you'll be surprised what she had to say about being disgusted, which means this week on Patreon, it's another edition of This Week in Hell, as well as my personal hell, and an in-depth in discussion about being disgusted. But if you want to hear any and all of that, you must subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams, well, this Friday and his podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, the rest of our, your answers to this week's question, Mel, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do.
servile skin, hospitable masks. This week's moment of truth is in large part plagiarized from the employee handbook of a restaurant. Paraphrasing may occur to protect the relatively innocent, but the ideas and their intent have not been altered. Let me say at the outset that even in a worker's utopia, there could still be restaurants, public houses, taverns, and inns. There could still be employees, although their stake in any enterprise would be deeper and more satisfying than even the most enlightened employer could possibly hope to provide under our current form of material and spiritual economy. And there would most certainly still be handbooks, although, again, the forms they might take and the information they might pass along are unimaginable in their variety of tropes, modalities, and even straightforward content. There is a difference between service and hospitality, saith the handbook. It goes on to define its terms. Service, the action or condition of aiding or doing work for another which the handbook opposes with the definition of hospitality, the amiable and open-hearted reception, provision for, and entertainment of visitors, regardless of familiarity. Service versus hospitality. Customers come to our establishment for service, and we provide them with top-notch hospitality. Whoa, sounds like the old bait-and-switch to me. <laughs> Just kidding. Very admirable to give the guest hospitality, top-notch hospitality, no less, when all they came in with was the low pedestrian expectation of mere service. Okay. We, the employees, get it. We will not provide mere service. We will extend from our magnanimous nature's hospitality. Service is insufficient. Hospitality is the key. We aim to provide an adventure every time they visit. Whatever they're stopping in for, every guest gets top-notch service every single time. Wait. They're getting top-notch service? I thought they were getting top-notch hospitality. Are we doing something wrong here? Are we cheating them out of hospitality? We aim to give every single guest the best and most memorable experience. We want them to leave feeling satisfied and attended to. Guests come to our establishment for an experience, and that is the service we provide. So it is service. We're not providing hospitality. We're providing service. Sorry I got that wrong. How could I have been so weak-minded? To serve is to sell, the handbook now insists. Ah, so we've abandoned hospitality altogether. Now we want to sell the guests things while behaving as if we're helping them. The old switcheroo. I knew it was in there somewhere. While pretending to provide aid to the patron, I am really working for the boss who wants me to add upselling to my pantomime of helpfulness. Why didn't you say so? Hey, we employees work for tips, so upselling is in our interest, too. And the more we can make it appear to be in the customer's interest, the better it's disguised as hospitality. We're in the hospitality industry after all. Then there is a helpful series of aphorisms, or maybe they're proverbs. You don't buy coal, you buy heat. You don't buy circus tickets, you buy thrills. You don't buy the paper... You buy the news. You don't buy glasses. You buy vision. Ah, you don't buy the bowl. You buy the space within. It's Taoism 101. You don't buy the gross material object, I think is what the handbook is getting at, but the gratification that comes from it in practice. But wait, those are followed by a fifth aphorism. You don't buy dinners. You buy sales and service. 
wait, what? What? I was expecting you don't buy dinner, you buy comfort, hospitality, and satisfaction. Or maybe even you don't buy dinner, you buy an excellently prepared and cheerfully provided meal. At worst, I expected you don't buy dinner, you buy a little slice of mama's house. But this lies below even my worst expectations. I mean, when I bought the circus tickets, I was expecting thrills. They did try to sell me a bunch of other things while I was there, like cotton candy, peanuts, a rubber band paddle ball, and a small lizard that I killed because I was a careless child. When I bought the newspaper, I bought it for the comics and the information, even though I know I always have to read between the lines to parse the bias of the paper's owners and editors. Is that what a patron really wants? Sales and service? Does sales plus service equal hospitality? To save is to sell, insists the handbook. Service equals selling. Hospitality equals serving plus selling? Not sure that the difference between service and hospitality is that one has no selling involved and the other does. The handbook goes on to say, Restaurants sell food, service, atmosphere, and entertainment. I see service and selling in there, but where's the hospitality? Is that covered under food, atmosphere, and entertainment? What I really think is going on here is that the handbook is uncomfortable asking an employee to put up a convincing act in order to disguise ulterior motives. Handbook, you are communicating that discomfort with your semantic incoherence, and that can make the employee uncomfortable. We all know what a job is. We're not applying to be St. Francis of Assisi here. The handbook goes on to warn about what happens if we fail to provide satisfaction to the customer. They might take their business somewhere else and not even inform us. I know the owners of this place. They take good care of their employees and their guests, as they call their customers. They don't pay just living wages, but thriving wages. I don't know if they'd welcome a union. I suspect they wouldn't. In fact, playing it out in my head, I'm sure they wouldn't. But maybe I'm mistaken. That wouldn't be unusual. Not to make too much out of the confusion between hospitality and service, handbook, but you're the one who posited the opposition hospitality versus service. That idea clearly got away from you, and I think the confusion you stumbled into is common. It arises from the way one must think in denial of one's true generosity, along with juggling multiple other alienations, while doing business in a world where deprivation and ultimately death are the consequences of failure. You shy away from advising the employee to perform helplessness. You want them to be sincerely helpful, while also offering more expensive alternatives to what the customer originally expected. You want deceit with a smile. You want a salesman who can take advantage of the false sense of security provided by atmosphere and fine craftsmanship. You provide quality in order to increase the cost to the mark, or rather customer, or rather guest during the curated experience. Why does this demand for theatrical con artistry make you uncomfortable? All workers, and indeed most people, must willingly, even cheerfully, suffer from a distorted sense of self in our corrupt world, where every ticket to a circus promises the thrill of being deceived, and every contract comes with a handshake and a handbook advising us to keep our authentic selves out of sight during hours of operation. This has been the Moment of Truth. 
Good day. I have a new tagline for us because of your moment of truth, and that is we're all victims of the old switcheroo. This is how. <laughs> we are. <laughs> so how are you? Uh, I might make it. How's gentrification uh, going next door? Oh, my God. You you have no. So I have padded my little recording space here. I put my comforter on these shoji screens. I'm wrapped in like a wool blanket and it's still that noise. <laughs> it's unbelievable. You should have heard them this morning. They were they were sawing rebar. Oh, Jesus. I, I was banging on it. And some guy comes afterwards, some 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 very industrious fellow in a pickup truck uh, comes and hops over the fence and uh, starts stealing used rebar and and you know offcuts of of i beams, and but he's like banging and hammering, so it's like clanging and banging from morning till night. I love shinny men, as they were known in the Detroit area. I love those guys. The guys is that what that is? Yeah. I oh, I have a feeling that it's a racist term in some way, but I'm afraid. To <laughs> Probably. Oh, I was going to yell that out the window. Hey, shinny man, <laughs> knock it off. All right, Jeffy. Work day's over, yes. No show next week, but until the next time we speak, stay beautiful. Okay. Alex, remind us one last time, what is this week's question, Mel, and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding. Which influence in? This week's question, Mel, is much influence in? Rock Taster says, making appliance repair sexy again. <laughs> eat Fart 69, old pal Eat Fart 69 says, my back. Puppet Image Limited says, you guys need to get Jaron Lanier or Sam Vaknin on the horn. Mm-hmm. Also, Submedia is doing some thing on social media. All right. Okay. Okay. And maybe that might influence us. We'll see. <laughs> and then finally, Loose Nuke says, I'm influencing my sixth cup of coffee today. The answers I liked most were Neil C. saying nothing that's trending. I liked Egon, past board operator here on the show, saying bees make Bitcoin right. That was a very good one. Joel G. saying not a damn thing. David S. saying myself with alcohol and assorted other substances. Alex B. saying the labor militancy of my union, I hope. Michael D. saying how big my stomach is getting. Kim G. saying soup skeptics. Mark A. saying the climate. But... This week's winner, my favorite response, was one that I did not even see prior to today's show, but Alex read earlier on today, on this morning's show. Uh, Alex, could you please repeat Ginny's response to this week's question from hell? Uh, Ginny says, hold on, let me pull that back up. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, Lindsay, uh, I would go out and edit this out of the interview. So like I already <laughs> have this up. giving her some tips. All right, so uh, Ginny says, what does Ginny say? Uh, well, let me pull it up. Jeez, it was uh, about mice. Yes, uh, a family of mice. Jeannie says a family of mice. That that is what she is influencing. A family of mice, which is fantastic. Here at the bar, we are influencing a horde of rats. Congratulations, Jenny. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, what you're influencing, like David S., I'm actively influencing my sobriety and lack thereof, and I'll be doing a lot more over the next week, and I'll explain that in a moment. Thanks to everybody for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We are taking next week off as I am moving back into the office here above Carrie's Lounge for the first time since nearly two years ago when the pandemic began. This is not to say that we believe in any way that the pandemic is over. Sadly, it's likely far from over now that 
even deer have contracted COVID and it may evolve into another mutated form in the very near future. I also love working at home and hanging out with my girlfriend all day, but the office here looks like, well, it looks like nobody has been using it as anything but a dumping ground, a storage closet, and the whole place desperately needs cleaning. We are also bringing on new people as board operators like Lindsay and new producers, and we need a week to help in that transition. So no live shows next week, except for next week's Patreon podcast. If you are listening on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment right now, we'll be playing a best of next week, so tune in for that. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure, and this week's Hangover Cure is Alcosynth, and no, this isn't a really bad episode of Star Trek Next Generation. Thanks to this week's guests in order, Nathaniel Johnson, who posted the Grist article, How a $60 Million Bribery Scandal Helped Ohio Pass the Worst Energy Policy in the Country. Thanks to historian Hannah Farber, author of Underwriters of the United States, How Insurance Shaped the American Founding. And thanks to the person we just spoke with, historian Daniel Immervar, who wrote the Guardian article, A Deranged Pyroscape, How Fires Across the World Have Grown Weirder. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Lindsay for coming in and seeing how that production happens. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for running the board this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And special thanks to Theron Humiston. Just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when we will have yet another edition of This Is Hell which is my review of what I got from this week's This Is Hell, and interlaced with my own personal hell, and a 10-year-old interview on being disgusted and disgusting. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. I got some apple pie for you, Chuck. Sweet. Uh, sometimes you have to choose between killing your family and baking an apple pie, and I had some apples. Well, I'll be very glad that you chose the latter. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>